producer Brunt will fly for a white guy. Or the Nat Farmer you know from WickedHorror.com. I am Gus Lay, a.k.a. Tumblr user Homosocialite, um, a.k.a. Ariel Lay, writing for Paper Droids, uh, writing independently for Queer.com. Um, however you know me, you might also know me as your professor, in which case this is what I do when I'm not at school. Professor. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> and this is how to... Make people and alienate friends. We're, we're still getting used to the name. We've, we actually picked the name first before yep. anything else about this podcast, and we're still... Yep. Getting to know the name game. Um, we're getting there. We're getting there. We're getting there. We got it down. We got it down. Um, this is our first commentary. Um, this is also our first um, official podcast. But this is our first commentary. We'll be doing recurring of these features mostly to match up with the main content um, of what we'll be looking at with each recurring podcast. Um, and what better way to start out um, in the Halloween season than with John Carpenter's Halloween? Which was a wise choice. Um, I like that we picked this film for a lot of reasons. This is a movie I go back a long time with. This is one that I've always held either very close or closest to my heart. And I will acknowledge Tumblr followers out there that when I ask sometime in the middle of the summer um, if there was a commentary people uh, would want me to do, this was the film that got the most replies. Absolutely. Um, this, out of all of the movies in the franchise, actually three is the one that sticks with me the most, but I'm warming up to this one more and more the more we talk about it and the more we watch it, and certainly it warmed up to me after um, last year's Halloween Horror Nights Orlando House really got me to look at this in a new way. And that is how I've always felt about three. <laughs> And that's why we'll be talking about both of those extensively mm -hmm. in the podcast proper, which accompanies this commentary. Yes. Which will be our full franchise discussion. Yes. But really, mostly this movie and, and um, Season of the Witch. But um, those of you who are playing at home, we're not going to talk your ear off with, um, I mean, we're going to talk your ear off, but not so much with our jabber. You can tune into the main podcast. You can also... Um, check out the blog that accompanies our podcast. Um, you can also contact us at either of our tumblers um, at any time. But for now, we're going to get right to it. So those of you who are dialing in from home, you know, have your remotes ready and we'll count down if um, Nat wants to do the, un the uh, honors. Yes. The undertaking. And because I know this can get tough for people uh, listening to podcasts at home on listening to commentaries uh the version of the film that we are watching is the 35th anniversary blu-ray because there can be timing issues and syncing issues with those things so and just as a reminder we're looking at um john carpenter's halloween not rob zombie's halloween although that is absolutely a valid film in its own right yeah i mean obviously you have syncing issues with that one that's an hour longer i mean you might have a little bit of difficulty just a little bit. I'd like to think you'd know <laughs> early on, though. I'd like to think when you got to kiss and the lead-in and the dialogue, especially, that you'd know you were watching a Rob Zombie film. <laughs> 
we'll yes. be we'll be talking about Rob Zombie's choice of um, dialogue when we get to his particular episode of the uh, podcast. But um, those of you who have your remotes handy or your controllers handy or you know your finger there on the space bar, um, we'll be starting in three, two, one, go. screen this is this was actually um okay here, Look, here, and we have the uh here's the interpretive compass, penis and balls the international pictures dom <laughs> what they actually wanted to accompany <laughs> mustafa akad was the producer of course for uh, the whole series up until uh his tragic death john carpenter's halloween the weenening so um I can't imagine how much people don't know at this point, but a bit of backstory on the film itself before we jump right into it. This was almost sort of a contract job for John Carpenter. Mm-hmm. He was, he had just directed Assault on Precinct 13, and he did Dark Star before that, but Assault on Precinct 13 was in some ways his first uh, real movie. Um, Dark Star was built out of a student project, and... Mm-hmm. He was brought in by Erwin Yablons, who was an independent producer, who uh, had an idea for a film called The Babysitter Murders. Mm -hmm. And that was done to sort of be uh, set all in one night to keep the cost down. And he had the idea of uh, setting it on on Halloween night. And it was, I think, his decision eventually to title the film Halloween. Um, It may have been Carpenter's, but I'm pretty sure that that one fell to Yablons. Mm -hmm. And then they went to Mustafa Akkad to actually get the money to make the film. And Akkad was producing a film at that time. It was a big producer in the UK. Mm -hmm. And he was doing a film that cost 300000 a day. Mm-hmm. And he was sold. He didn't care what the movie was about. He was sold on the fact that this entire film was going to cost $300,000. And signed the check, and that was how Carpenter got the job. Now, what's the timeline between um, when Halloween was cast from when um, Assault on Precinct 13 came out? Because there's the connection with um, Donald Pleasance and how Donald Pleasance came to be in this movie. Right. Um, this movie was cast very quickly and um, I'll jump back to that because I really want to talk about the opening shot absolutely this is one of my favorite opening shots in any horror film it took it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood two days uh, to do this which is designed to look um, like it's done all in one shot there are actually a couple of cuts in this that I will point out when we get there um, here, this obviously spoiler alert from the perspective of young Michael Myers, watching his girlfriend Judith, or his sister Judith and her boyfriend Cliff John McGraw. <laughs> girlfriend Judith. Well, I see. Let's be real. Yeah, we may as well get that out of the way right now. We might as well talk about Michael and his uh, voyeurism towards teenage girls but sister figures teenage family members in particular and 
this house we'll see later on when this house is you know dilapidated mess this was actually um at the time they filmed this it looked like the way it, it looks in the rest of the movie and for this one shot because it tracks through almost the entire house they had to clean up the entire house and basically renovate it mm -hmm. and then flip it on the market later and that's how john carpenter came on his rare um appearance on house hunters that was that's how uh, he earns that beer and saves money because they didn't make actually that's not true he made more off of this movie eventually than any other thing he ever did mm. The hand of beyond Michael Myers there was producer and co-writer Deborah Hill. We're coming up on one of those um, cuts that you um, yep. wanted to point out to us. Yep. So keep your eyes glued to the screen because it's going to be quick. But keep your eyes glued even harder because you are witnessing one of the quickest sexual acts in cinema history. Hey man, some people have their pace and they know it and they own the moment because it is, look you know, that, a moment. Look at smile on his face. He doesn't care. He doesn't care how that went for him. <laughs> <laughs> he, he got what he needed. Um, <sighs> yeah, actually, you can kind of see the pieces of the house that they missed cleaning right here. Well, you know, it's dark. Mm -hmm. They they can They can kind of you know, make do in the dark, just like that young couple must have done, um, you know, a half a second prior. And Tom Savini, of all people, who's not associated in ha Halloween whatsoever, um, has always used this shot as the reason he hates the movie. Why? That's a cut. That's one cut right there. I was too enthusiastic about that, but now you know. And Tom Savini said that he is, Michael is way too tall in this scene, but he could not believe that a child committed this. But I've seen behind the scenes of this, and poor Dean Cundy and the camera, they were actually like almost on their knees filming this from the height of young Michael Myers. Also, have they not been in a kindergarten lately? Because those, those little sprouts are fairly tall. Mm -hmm. And he's shoulder height yeah. with his sister who is sitting down yeah. when he does this. Um, I know that bit there was to contextualize it, but I actually like the idea of Michael looking at the knife as he swings it down. I personally like the idea of him making airplane noises as he does it. Just... <laughs> so one of my favorite things about this is um, the practicality of actually putting the mask over the camera lens. They only had to tell those dollars. Yeah, but, I mean, even, even such... It's really effective to look at. It though. is. Those two little, like, holes cut out in the camera lens. Because those of you who have been, you know, dicking around in Spirit Halloween this, you know, the past couple of weeks know how disorienting it is to... That's a plug, Spirit. That's Fund a plug. Us. Fund us. <laughs> Give us that beer and sinks money. I love this. I love this little freeze frame moment mm -hmm. where the only thing you have is that dagger dancing in the breeze. They're not moving at all and the knife is just swaying in the air and that's really unsettling, especially with the way it tilts. Mm-hmm and just sort of reflects the light of the camera. And then that pullback, which is inspired by, um, Carpenter said that was inspired by Orson Welles' uh, Touch of Evil. Yeah. And here now we're bringing Donald Pleasance into the movie, so <laughs> nice segue back around to jump into that. Exactly. Pleasance was one of the last people brought into this film. Yeah. Um, 
the first person they took this to was Christopher Lee. Mm. And Christopher Lee, who um, by the time he tragically passed away this year, had more credits than any other living actor, um, he turned it down. It was one of the very few films in his career he turned really? down. Really? Why? Do we know? There's no real reason for why he turned it down at the time, but Lee actually said right up until his death that turning down the role of Donald of Dr. Loomis in Halloween was the biggest regret of his entire career. No kidding. But But they, it's also one of the greatest gifts that we could ever have had of Donald yes. Pleasance in this role. Yes. And they were in they were completely enthusiastic when uh they got Donald Pleasance to do it because they wanted a known actor in that mm -hmm. part because that's part of what helps you sell an independent movie right. to investors and Pleasance was only on this film for five days Yes, it was about a 20-25 day shooting schedule mm -hmm. and he's in a good chunk of the movie Yes, and they just powered through his scenes and it was funny he went to Carpenter initially and was just like I don't know why I'm doing this movie. I can't do a very good normal person. Uh, you can, just not in this context. I don't want to be mean to Donald Pleasance. Well, I mean, nobody wants to be mean to Donald Pleasance. My heart hurts every time we watch Escape from New York because I'm so worried about what happens to Donald Pleasance. You're the Duke. You're the Duke. A number one. <laughs> Donald Pleasance goes up to John Carpenter, old Beer and Ziggs, who's at the time beer young Beer and Ziggs. Six. young. Uh, up and coming beer and six. <laughs> and I said, I don't know why I'm doing this movie. I don't get the script. I don't like the script, but my daughter really liked the music in Assault on Precinct 13. And think, that's why I'm doing the film. Which is also a good time to point out those uh, sick Carpenter beats that we certainly listened to in the intro mm -hmm. and that really bring out the echoes of the tone of the scene throughout any Carpenter movie, but particularly in Halloween. Particularly this one. I mean, this is fairly, uh, well, the most known of his scores. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of reasons for that. And interestingly enough, uh, Carpenter said that he showed, he finished the rough cut of the film and rough cut, you know, is a basic edit to get uh, the story down and where it's going and just to visualize it to investors and distributors. And it's usually done without sound effects or music. It's just uh, the film, the dialogue, and whatever in-camera sound effects mm -hmm. there are. And people hated it. Uh, producers hated it, and they said, you know, what is this? This isn't scary. And uh, it wasn't until he added the music to it that anyone actually... That it became effing scary? That it became effing scary, John. <laughs> that is, uh, That's a you, nod to... Um, if you haven't heard Jamie Lee Curtis reunion commentary... Please do. Please John treat Carpenter, yourself. It's on this very Blu-ray we're watching, and it's worth it. Maybe not in a way that you're going to gain anything from it but we like to think that we fill in those gaps so that you can appreciate the um jamie lee curtis john carpenter commentary for the gift that it truly is and this is a good time to point out the 35th anniversary transfer that we're watching um this looked very different than the way i was used to watching halloween before this came out um when i 
watching, growing up watching the VHS and the DVD. And those of you who are watching the VHS and DVD right now who are like, what are you talking about? Well, I'll point out that that movie is very uh, warmly colored. They shot this in the dead of August, and you could very much tell that it was summertime. It looked like California. And this is a very cooler version. Not like, not, it's, it's, it's pretty cool cut of Halloween, bro. <laughs> but it's like, this cold autumn colors. Which very gray. Suit the movie a lot more in terms of setting it as actually October. And here we have Jamie Lee Curtis. Who also just in time for our little promo bump. Jamie Lee Curtis. Effin' scary. <laughs> <laughs> Jamie Effin' Lee Curtis scary. And uh, she had not done much um, at the time. She had done a few TV series gigs. She was only 20 and was just starting out as an actress, really. And Ron Andrews as Tommy Doyle. He just, he just became huge. Was, his career skyrocketed. Ant-Man. Uh, forgetting Sarah <laughs> Marshall. Marshall. I mean, he, he grew up to be Paul Rudd. <laughs> <laughs> Which we'll also discuss in our long-form commentary <laughs> on where Paul Rudd's character comes in. Yeah, in our full franchise discussion, we'll talk about the Rudd of it all. Yes, fuck. <laughs> but, but these uh, two. These two, I really like their chemistry. This was, by the way, what the, I'm gesturing emphatically uh, for those of you at home to get the full experience. The house right now is actually the way they found it. This was just, this was what they needed. So they had to fix up all that for the prologue sequence. I like to believe that was the original um, for sale um, by owner sign that they just left out there for the purposes of building. Probably. Very cheap. That little bit of Michael Myers there is really interesting to me, especially if you take into account that Lori was not Michael's sister when they did this film. That did not factor into the movie at all. That wasn't until, you know, part two, they did the Empire Strikes Back thing. That was the same year. That was yeah. the same year. Same year. Damn it, John. But <laughs> here. But what is interesting is that, you know, in this context of this movie, the babysitter, you know, child relationship is much more of a realistic and believable family dynamic. I mean, the mm -hmm. idea of, you know, the kid that you babysit coming and running up to you. I mean, I've never had a babysitter, nor have I, you know, been a babysitter. But. The idea of that kind of closeness comes mm -hmm. off to me as being a little bit more advanced and programmed in to replicate um, a more typical family relationship than the one that we just saw of, you know, jealous baby boyfriend Michael mm -hmm. Myers stabbing his sister lover who spurned him. And it makes Michael creepier. He's just, he's in the window of that house just looking out virtually the first girl he sees yeah. and says, you're my girl yep. for the day. He's setting up, he's just like a scare actor in a haunted house, mm -hmm. picking out people that go through saying, you're the scared one, 
you're the vulnerable one. Mm-hmm. I am going to focus everything on you. Mm-hmm. Which is frightening. There's no familial connection here. He is just picking out the person who's the most afraid already. Yeah. Right off the bat. And I have six essays I've written oh, on geez. Halloween that I'm picking it's, through. It's true. Six times! Six times! Just get things uh, sorted. But I love how observant she is, and I love what a spurn this is to the way that the 90s has described the final girl to be, of being somebody who is not in the moment until she suddenly is. Right. Lori is aware that something is off from the beginning. She doesn't necessarily know what it is, but she is very conscious of the fact that there's something going on. She's not... It's like she's not in on the joke. She knows she's not in on the joke, Mm -hmm. and she wants to know what the joke is. Mm -hmm. And that's pranks to Michael Myers, who fives his sweet-ass time. Mm -hmm. And also, before... We cut back to uh, uh, Loomis and Wynn there with the... He doesn't even know how to drive a car. There was Lori walking away from Michael Myers, and she's singing. Yes. And she's walking. And Carpenter was big on songs that didn't have to require any kind of copyright. Right. So he just made up some lyrics, and Jamie Lee Curtis doesn't sing, and she was very, very nervous about it. And she's walking away, something about uh, just just the two of us, Michael walked away. Oh. And uh, she was horrified. That was her very first day as on her very first feature film when she was the lead. And apparently she went home after shooting that day and she got a call from John Carpenter. Mm-hmm. And said, uh, Jamie, John Carpenter on the phone. And she thought, this is it. Uh, she just thought she was fired that she on was the toast. and he just told her you know i just want to say you did a great job today and i'm looking forward to working with you again tomorrow i think this is actually also the point in the their commentary where they're talking about that or rather where jamie's talking about that and john's saying no no i th- I, th- I thought you were i thought you were great question mark they had an amazing misunderstanding <laughs> Speaking of observant, this this little kid certainly turning back around. I mean, mm-hmm. we had just seen mm-hmm. you know a shot of him being bullied by a bunch of other kids, so certainly he's already on his toes. But the sense of omniscience that omniscience that this little kid has. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Tommy's going on about the boogeyman the whole damn movie. Yeah. Nobody listens. No. And there's a there's a reason he turns into Paul Rudd. Let's face it. Yeah. I feel bad for, I don't know if this is actually Dean Cundy operating the camera, but that is a full film camera in the back of a station wagon Ooh. for that shot. And uh, in the dead of August in California, I don't know even how many times they filmed that. Mm-hmm. But they also, an attention to detail I actually like, even though it's probably the worst thing they could have done for safety reasons is that they made Nick Castle, who was playing Michael Myers in the movie... In this part of the movie, at least. In these portions of the movie, to, uh, they made him wear the mask while he was driving. Which... Doesn't quite have the same brilliant effect as putting the mask on the camera, if you, right. if you ask me. Right. It's something that nobody's going to notice, like, until this Blu-ray or something, but it's... It's worth 
you know, it's a nice attention to detail. And here we have just about the, ol the only death in the movie we don't actually see happen. Um, fans speculate on this one a lot. There, I've seen whole, like, uh, threads and forums as, as, you know, yeah. why, why did Michael kill the tow truck driver? What was Michael's reasoning behind murdering this tow truck driver? And, you know, I think the movie sets it up pretty well. He was wearing a sheet, and his ass was hanging out the back, and he thought, you know, I'd like some pants. I think, nice change of pace. I've been in this sheet for 15 years. Michael's treating himself to some pants. Yeah. And, you know, it's very clearly set up that that was him getting coveralls and everything. It's also something that you see a parallel to, or rather, not so much a parallel, but a similar setup in um, Friday the 13th, mm -hmm. where Pam kills um, Annie at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. um, certainly we've seen speculations, even in the canon comic books, of why that murder was motivated. I've admittedly... Well, she explains her life story to the girl as she's driving, you know, in that five minutes. I've even camp. admittedly written a paper about what that connection is and what that connection between, you know, Annie and Alice and how they frame the story might mm -hmm. be. Mm -hmm. But I think the most poignant and, you know, probably the most humble and simplistic um, answer is just the fact that Annie is the lunch lady now mm -hmm. and Pam was the lunch lady then and you know if i kill you i get your job it's exactly. it's that it's that simple kind of substitution and it is so simple that nobody wants to admit that that's what it could be mm -hmm. let's talk about the, the teen girls and talk about their writing yes um, because i think that's really interesting yes it was a really interesting way to co-write the film a lot of co-writers either exchange drafts one person does draft one one person does draft two but John Carpenter wrote all the scenes involving Michael Myers and Dr. Loomis and everything. And Deborah Hill um, wrote all the scenes specifically tied to the teenage girls. Because, as she pointed out to John Carpenter, she was the one who had been a teenage girl and knew how they talked. And that helped this film immensely, I think. I think so, too. In terms of getting their language down. It's, I mean, by today's standards, it's a little 1978. But, but it still makes them a believable group of friends because they are such diverse personalities. Yeah, and knowing, you know, what comes later, there are a lot of people who, a lot, a lot of people over the years who mistake the other girls as being killed because they are promiscuous. That these two girls are having sex and doing drugs and you know, Lori is the typical virginal repressed final girl, which already goes against those rules because we will see Lori smoke some pot in a few minutes. And but we also see Lori being set up with a boy. Yes. Like, she could have had her moment in the sun or, you know, under the sheets. Yeah. Against her, uh... Her better judgment, but... Her own will, really, is being set up with that yeah. boy. But still, and, you know, it's just the fact that, again, Lori's aware right from the beginning. Lori doesn't have anything to do with her time. No. Is, you know, her thing. She's babysitting, she's making all these responsibilities for herself to, to fill her time because she doesn't really have those things. It's not that she doesn't want them by any stretch, but these girls are more, you know, they've got 
more going on, they're not really paying attention. They're right. not really noticing the guy in the mask because, you know. They have, you know, their own lives that they're attending to. Which isn't to say that Laurie doesn't have a life. It's right. just that Laurie's is more open mm-hmm. to some extent. People still pop up behind this bush. People are driving away. <sighs> Can you imagine living in this neighborhood? It's like, uh, it's like the Goonies house where they eventually oh, said, everybody leave. Just go. The per- they are, they forced that person to be like a shut-in. That's horrible. She's blacked out the windows so nobody can peek inside and she like barely goes out of the house anymore. Good lord. Because it's just 10,000 visitors a day. The Halloween house, is that one that's on the market or is that one that's been inhabited or has that property been leveled? That's really interesting. It wasn't leveled. It was going to be leveled but a fan bought it for $1. Wow. Because it was right about to be leveled, so they didn't care what was going on with it. Wow. And I'm pretty sure it was moved from its original location because I've seen pictures of this, and I think what it was was it was in an empty, like, vacant lot at right. one point. So everything around it had been leveled, mm-hmm. and it was fenced off, and the only thing that was still there was the Halloween Michael Myers house. And they moved that. But I've seen a lot of um, behind-the-scenes stuff. Horus Hallowed Grounds with John Clark. Mm-hmm. Worth checking out for all you people out there who are into that kind of thing. And a lot of these places are still standing because this was right downtown um, South Pasadena. There's right. a lot going on down there and a lot of things are shot around there. When I hear Pasadena now, I can only think of um, one of the more recent episodes of Celebrity Wife Swap with, with Corey Feldman and Corey's Angels. Pasadena, is that where old people live? <laughs> is it just wrong? No, just but. A, but just imagine like all the old folks and all the little horror hounds, you know, poking around. Mm-hmm. Just now, there's there's an idea for a Halloween sequel. It's the same neighborhood. I'm, let me pitch this to you. It's, all right, I'm ready. I'm ready. It's the same neighborhood, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, it's. It's, it's established kind of like a new nightmare that this is a horror franchise and that this is, you know, a fantasy world. I like where this is going. And you have pilgrims go to, you know, old Pasadena and they make their pilgrimages. And particularly, they make their pilgrimages on Halloween night, you know, to see if Michael Myers will appear. You know, it's like, it's like Linus sitting in the Great Pumpkin Patch. And, you know, eventually... These, these old people get sick of it and they try to get an order from the city to stop this and legally there's no way to actually stop it because they're not actually trespassing you know it's it's a main road that goes through this neighborhood they can't say that they can't come down this road and you know of the Michael creepy spying shots that one's that my one's, favorite yeah he yeah this one's very the good sheets, then he's like, <laughs> what is that foreshadowing I wonder if that's foreshadowing Michael's thing with the sheets later on. I think so. I strongly think so. I mean, if you also think about the sheets in the truck, Mm -hmm. and you just think of this as a recurring sheet motif. These are can't escape sheets? No. Just when you think you're dead? Which also means that sheets need to be a huge part of this uh, follow-up, this follow-up in the franchise. Um, You know, Halloween, old people town, Pasadena. Yes. Yes. you know, these old people want these, you know, young horror pilgrims out. They want these horror hounds out. And, 
you know, there's tension in the streets, the police are there, and then suddenly one person just goes down with a knife in the back, um, you know, falls down in the street, and everybody's, you know, panicking and blaming one another, and cops are trying to, you know, shove the old people back, but also shove these young horror hounds back, and it turns into pandemonium in the street. And, and that's when, you know, people start suspecting that there is a real Michael Myers, and other people are saying, no, that can't possibly the case be the case. This must be like some crazed fan who just is so sick of waiting for Michael Myers that he brought Michael Myers himself. And, you know, this, this, is, this is the direction that I think any intrepid um, screenwriters, hint, hint, should um, at least send to us so that we can make a short of this. Ironically enough, um, when it was in, when they scrapped the anthology thing from Halloween 3, mm -hmm. Carpenter's pitch for Halloween 4 would have been um, that Haddonfield had completely repressed Michael Myers they had thrown out everything to do with him. There was no celebration of Halloween because they just wanted to can it. They just wanted the whole thing to go away. And his idea was that their repression of Michael Myers would wind up bringing him back. I love it. As I, a spooky Michael Myers ghost. I love that I have this soul connection to John Carpenter that clearly yes. needs to be realized. Yes. He is the beer and cigs in all of us. <laughs> Amen to that. It's back to the movie. We've got Lori uh, with her great pumpkin, Charlie Brown, and her pumpkin waddle. That Don't is, drop it, Lori. That is just, that's how you move. That's a walk. <laughs> the daddy penguin waddle. It'll catch on. It's been over 35 years, but it'll catch on. <laughs> but as I was, you know, pointing out earlier, here we have Lori partaking of the wacky tobacco. You know, smoking weed in the cemetery. I think this is probably one of the more awkward shots in the, mm -hmm. or rather one of the more awkward cuts in the film. Mm -hmm. I like this though, because fans have always gone on about this uh, story that the gravekeeper explains here. Old Charlie Bowles went and got himself a hacksaw, mm -hmm. comes back, kisses his wife and family goodbye. And that's the end of it. That's where the story cuts out. And mm -hmm. fans for years were like, what's he do? Which you know, he probably kissed his wife and family goodbye and killed them with that hacksaw. But you don't know. He could have gone in all sorts of directions. But people have just been enamored with that. And an indie filmmaker actually did try to film a very low-budget movie that I think was called um, The Russellville Hacksaw Murders. And as far as I know, that they, they actually started shooting that, but it didn't get fully funded hmm. for whatever reason. It, they ran out of money, and it just stopped, so I don't think we'll probably ever see it. But according to John Carpenter, that story was just something that had actually happened around where he grew up in Kentucky. It was somebody had just killed his wife and his children mm -hmm. with a hacksaw. As, you know, one does. As one does, and he just put it in the movie. A true Truman Capote, that one. If only. If only. But, um, no, it actually comes up to a point that I was talking about with my students the other day about how, you know, 
a story can be as few as six words or as long as an epic, unending saga that, you know, never has a clear-cut conclusion. Mm -hmm. But the sheer infinitude of what that story is saying mm -hmm. and what and how that story will stay with us and how we can identify with any story down to its most basic parts. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the fact that in Halloween there is something that personal, and even if it's not something that's that personal and concrete it's something that's that evocative that other people want to take that and you know bridge that out of this immediate context of halloween mm -hmm. and create it into something that's more personal and i think you know in terms of that specific story that one really cut off where it needed to mm -hmm. it gave you everything you needed to know and your mind just fills in the gaps which right is the part of, i like here we got Charles Seifert leading right into the camera. Uh, I like Laurie's trying to play it cool face. Mm -hmm. Her stoic, I am not poking I am. smart. <laughs> I am perfectly reasonable and functional. And gosh darn it, people like me. The best part is that dad must know because that's, you know, yeah. his daughter and his car that he bought her that... He absolutely must know what she does in her spare time. Another question that people had gone off on before, because Laura's like, oh, did he know? And uh, that's my that's my Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah, and that's a pretty good Jamie Lee Curtis. He, he must have. He must have mm -hmm. known. If you want to get really into it, the novelization of mm. Halloween. Which you were reading, I saw the other day. No comment. The <laughs> novelization of Halloween that he knew. I love what I'm right. And that Loomis has a teenage son he never sees. Really? Yep. Really? Yep. There's How old is... That was really bad. Really bad detective work there. See, that, that actually is an interesting detail because, I mean, regardless of whether or not it's relevant to um, Donald Pleasance's performance, the character of Loomis, um, if we think about the fact that he's been working with Michael for 15 years. Oh, yeah. How yeah. old is the teenage son? Um, I don't know. The, the novelization doesn't get really into specific. The novelization also uh, is the first thing to introduce the Druid cult that oh. comes into play later oh, in the Lord. franchise. Oh, Lord. But uh, I, I don't know, but I really like that idea because he's been working with um, Michael since Michael was six. Yeah. For 15 years. The son is probably around 15 and was a newborn when Loomis started working with Michael. Because that's a really surreal idea to think about. The idea that he's, you know, working with this boy who, you know, while he certainly doesn't have a father-son relationship with him, he certainly has just as much contact, if not more, than with this child that is his biological son. And I kind of, weirdly enough, like the idea that Loomis would have a son that was just sacrificed to his obsession with Michael. But I also like, you know, people say that these early movies didn't play up the relationship between Loomis and Michael. We never really see it. Uh, certainly not the way we do in Rob Zombie's Halloween, where we right. get everything in those sanitarium years. But I like that in just a few lines here, we do get some of what their relationship was like, because when Loomis gives his his big speech later where, you know, the, the devil's eye speech, as it is known. Yes. He points out that he spent eight, before he started thinking Michael was the Antichrist, he spent eight years trying to reach him. Yeah. He says, 
and then another seven trying to keep him locked up. Like, he spent a good chunk of time trying to break through for that kid when he probably got to a point where he realized there was no way and that this kid was something different. Right. That there was something wrong. (laughs) He still wanted to help them. Right. And that's a really important distinction to me. I... I agree. This... I, I'm just hypnotized by this. Michael, I'm absolutely transfixed. Michael hiding behind trees is really interesting because there are shots, especially um, when they recreate stuff like this in uh, Halloween 2, because mm-hmm. they still have Dean Cundy on cinematography. There are a lot of nice moments where Michael starts to step out and then realizes he might be seen and just kind of ducks back. Mm-hmm. Like, there's something kind of almost like a nervous kid about him still. Like, Which is important to point out that he is only twenty twenty one. He's twenty one at this point, and people have come up with the assumption of you know oh is he stuck in a in a child mentality, and I personally really like the intelligence that um, is given to him, the way he Michael is in charge of the pacing of this first movie. Right. Michael is setting everything up at his leisure. He has proven himself to be very patient by waiting 15 years to even do any of this. But he is in charge of everything that goes on throughout the night here. And we'll probably talk about it more in the franchise episode, that there are a lot of very specific intelligent things that he does in the sequel in terms of stalking his family, in terms of breaking into witness protection files... Mm -hmm. But even without the premeditate aspect, the spontaneity and the intelligence that he shows and his ability to think quickly mm-hmm. and think crafty, and I think we'll especially see this um, in the upcoming murder scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, his ability to solve puzzles and to create puzzles mm-hmm. is absolutely phenomenal because mm-hmm. we don't see, you know, in this movie what kind of enrichment he would have had in the sanitarium. Right. But we see... In his real-world practical skills, we see applications of very, very complex ideas Mm -hmm. of how to establish a scene, how to create a scene, how to force a specific type of social interaction. He does have a character. He's perceived as this sort of absence of character. But what I like about Michael Myers is that he's a very subtle character. Mm -hmm. There's definitely a prankster, practical joker element to this first movie. And in general, he's sort of, uh, you know, the white mask, the absence at least of human emotion and everything and basic humanity. It's just something that you can project onto. Whatever you as an individual, as a viewer, are actually afraid of, you can just project that onto the blank movie theater screen that is Michael Myers' mask. Right. And here, here is the Dr. Loomis speech. The buddy cop. The buddy cop, um, tragic story unlocked moment. Yeah, I like their dynamic. Me I like too. the reversal of normal uh, psychologist and normal cop that you see in movies. Mm-hmm. In which the cop is the rational, very deliberately, th- 
slower paced thinking person of what to do in the situation and the psychiatrist is the one who goes in guns blazing right and it's just like all right we gotta stop the son of a bitch absolutely the greatest example of roulette mm -hmm. characterization mm -hmm. that's awesome but look at donald pleasant's here and look at the way that the light is catching in his eyes mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. that's, that's it really is and particularly because this is the one moment of emotive connectivity to michael the mm -hmm. fact that we have something that strong that you know covers essentially everything that rob zombie unpacks in that extra hour of sanitarium yeah. footage yeah and everything Dean Condy did was shadow in that previous scene, too. Just a lot of lighting and 70s furniture and shag carpet in this scene, so that doesn't really apply. I, I love I love the little spacesuit so dime much. Store space suit. I love the dime store spacesuit with, you know, Tommy's haircut and how Luke Skywalker this all is. Oh, yeah. As we were, you know, discussing this Luke Skywalker slip. Absolutely. But what I love most about his Halloween costume is how much it draws attention to the budget of the movie. Yeah. That's what they could afford. Yep. That plaid. Oh, it's such a disaster. I see things just like it for Over 21 all the time, though. I know. It's it's back. The, it's, uh, guess who's back and better than ever. The Annie of it all is back. <laughs> What if we could have a spinoff called The Annie of It All? Oh, I would be all about that. I would, Annie's Guide to Life and Living, I would eat that up. So would I. People have called a lot of attention to the fact that Michael is more about killing animals than other, um, other slashers, which was certainly another thing that was really brought up in Rob Zombie's movie. Yeah. But just that Michael kills a dog in this movie... Um, which was something Carpenter and Deborah Hill get heat for. Yeah. But he hadn't really, since the prologue scene, he hadn't really done anything yet. Right. And we need something just in there for pacing and scares to show that he is still very dangerous at this point. Right. Because all he's doing is kind of watching teenage girls through windows. And one little boy. Yeah. <laughs> so, creepy, but... The dog's in there to really show that he is a, a violent man. Yeah. Absolutely. And Tommy. Poor Tommy interrupting. Poor Tommy. Interrupting Poor baby Paul Tommy. Rudd. Man. I want to see Tommy's teenage years, though. We don't get that. We don't get no. the time between this and being adult Paul Rudd. Because I want to see Tommy as angsty wet hot american summer paul rudd exactly i mean i choose to believe that is his character personally that's how i tie all of this together is that he is andy changes his name as part of the witness protection program i want to believe that then reclaims it back in his older wiser years when he just realizes he, he couldn't escape his tragic past there we go we've we've solved we've solved the gap and our other child will be blissfully unaware when we see. 
Oh, poor Lindsay. Poor Lindsay is the subject of so much secondhand trauma that she doesn't even realize that she's culpable to. Like, pedophile Bob. Oh, pedo Bob. Pedo Bob. Pedo Bob. Lindsay was also one that came back in the comics. And there was um, a comic that dealt with... It was a one-off comic that was entirely um, Loomis and Michael's time in the sanitarium. Mm -hmm. And some uh, actually specific moments in it came from the novelization. But it was very much focused on that. And he did not have a son in that version. Right. But he had a romance with a, I think a nurse at the sanitarium? Or a budding romance. I mean, the whole thing covers a span of 15 years. Yeah. So it's very slow going. And they decide to actually get together right about the time she has her uh, tragic accident. Quote, unquote, tragic accident. An RKO radio picture. RKO radio picture. Winchester Pictures presents. It's really hard for me to believe this isn't foreshadowing. I know, right? It's not because uh, the thing was a studio job that went to other directors before it came to John Carpenter, so I guess it just shows what a fan of the movie he He really is. Like, he's got evidence here that he he loved the thing before he took on the thing. He wasn't trying to, you know, do a better movie. His major influence in cinema was... Always the thing. It was Howard Hawks in general was the director that really um, was what he aspired to do. Carpenter's remade Rio Bravo at least three times. Mm-hmm. This house is so weirdly decorated. Yes. Like, yes. I wonder how much of it was the house they actually shot in because they didn't have any sound stages. Right. And how much of it was production design. But God, who would live in a house like this? It's, exactly. It's so, like, look that at that couch. thing. That, that. That sculpture. That like, spicy is that a... brown mustard couch. Uh, the, the couch at least has the illusion of being comfortable. I'm yeah. sure it's a burlap sack. But, <laughs> but that shadow of that crouching monkey jaguar thing is just... Fun fact, after escaping from the lake, after right. resurrecting however he did, Jason right. Voorhees came to Haddonfield, bought that couch at a yard sale, and renovated it to create his burlap sack mask. That's... That explains it all. That, that's your tie-in. That's the Michael versus Jason you always clamored for. Michael versus Jason's. <laughs> that's going to be saved for Friday the 13th. I can't wait to tell everybody about the Jasons. We're going to just read them on air. <laughs> Again, there's some really neat stuff going on with Shadow, and that is some insidious shit right there, with Michael just popping up in and out of windows. And disappearing. Mm-hmm. Um, Product placement for Tide? Yeah. Yeah. Well, they needed the money. <laughs> Tide or these folk? Both. You know, 1978, it was probably both. Yeah. 1970s were a dirty time. It was a dirty time. They they really need to change the course of the times. <laughs> um, going back to the hideously decorated house, the yeah. production designer on this film was Tommy Tommy Wallace, Wallace, who was offered Halloween 2, turned it down, directed Halloween 3, because he was told that it wouldn't be about Michael Myers, and he could not be more enthusiastic about that. (laughs) 
So there's some questionable production design, but the cinematography makes the most out of all of that. Absolutely. And he was also, Tommy Wallace was also the editor yes. on the movie, which is, he did a much better job at that. Yes. Absolutely. I've never noticed that before. Oh, right? The reflection, the reflection just shimmering of, in the... Of Michael in the... There's... Did you notice how he was kind of glinting like the dagger, too? Yes. Yes. And I've noticed that that's the only other time in the movie he does the head tilt. Mm-hmm. Which was a big thing. It was the only direction Carpenter gave him coming up when he kills Pedro Bob. But yeah, there's... One of my favorite things about this movie is I've seen it a hundred times. And, and there's, there's always something. There's stuff I'll still pick out that I've never seen before. Not unlike going through a haunted house attraction. Exactly. And, um, like, some of it came down to the VHS. Like, Michael's glaring shadow going across these, the wall and the sex scene. I never noticed on VHS just because of the quality. Right. Uh, it was very evident on DVD and, and Blu-ray and everything. But, right. You know, and a lot of it was... VHS didn't do the widescreen thing. Um, Carpenter, one of the things I love about Carpenter's movies is that they work with a very wide frame. Yes. Which means they're all useless to watch on VHS. But, you know, when Blu-ray came about, when we have the amazing invention of the widescreen television, mm -hmm. uh, it was more accessible to view Carpenter things at home. Mm -hmm. But I've done it a couple times, and to be a stupid little hipster, I do admit that really the way to see Halloween is in the theater. It's true. Uh, I mean, the so way to see pops. a lot of Carpenter. Yeah. And fortunately, Carpenter is something that tends to recur in the cinemas. Yes. He's had a lot of throwbacks in not just, you know, local uh, artsy fartsy artsy theaters we've had around here, but a lot of major chain theaters have brought back Halloween and The Thing in recent years. Mm-hmm. What are you wearing? <laughs> and then what? And that's John Carpenter as her boyfriend picking the cameo that he doesn't have to be there. If for. only she should be so lucky. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Nancy Loomis, ironically enough, not uh, her real name. Right. I, think. I know she's Nancy Kyes now. I don't. I think that was her original uh, given name, but she acted under Nancy Loomis even before her film with Doctor Loomis. Right. But she was uh, the wife of Tommy Lee Wallace. Yes. Which is why she came back as an entirely different character in Halloween Three. But. I, something about what she's doing with Annie really works for me. I really like all the cast of this movie. I'm trying to make out the detail of what's going on there on the screen. That is, that looks like just after they um, dig the creature out right. of the ice. Giant, uh, bald, Derek Mears looking guy that is the thing in the original thing from another world. So the neat thing about that is that's really the end of the exposition point more or less the same as how this is essentially the end of the exposition point in it's true. this movie right about here is where we really start to actually see michael myers little um 
little haunt of terrors really start to kick off and, you know, fall into scene. Like, this is the first knockdown of the domino path. Michael's Halloween Spooktacular. <laughs> Michael Myers' Magical Hayride. But the scene really does kick off the rest of the movie, because this puts... This is literally some kind of a transference with Annie passing Lindsay off yeah. into Lori's hands. And almost a passing off of responsibility. Yeah. Certainly there. And, uh basically setting up the rest of the movie what's to follow. I mean, now Laurie kind of holds all the cards mm -hmm. and Annie is well and truly alone which mm -hmm. will prove to be a mistake Yes, along with the quilt that she's wearing. It's actually really interesting to, to point out in at least this movie that Michael Myers is does not have the incentive to do violence in the vicinity of small children. He really doesn't. Like, Even his attack on Lori in the house, the kids have been moved into another room mm -hmm. before he really takes off at her. And he, he watches Tommy, but he never makes a move on Tommy. No. And what I got from that just analyzing again the original film on its own without the context of the sequels is that he starts um, watching Lori because he sees some of Judith yeah. in there you know she reminds him of his sister she has the same sort of build same hair maybe some personality um, aspects that he just immediately latches onto her like uh, like Judith yeah. and with Tommy I think He's seeing himself yeah. when he first committed the crime. Yeah. Um, because Brian Andrews playing Tommy Doyle does look a lot, a little similar to Will Sandon, yeah. who played Michael in the opening scene. Mm -hmm. And admittedly, Michael dresses up really quickly. This got foggy fast. But well, you know, that, that prank nitroglycerin bomb that he got from a... From the joke shop. From the joke shop. From the yoke shop. He's a prankster, that one. <laughs> yuck, yuck, yuck. But this is a really brutal kill. Yeah. Um, one of the things it's that's interesting about it is that this is the fastest Michael moves in the entire movie. Yeah. Even when he's killing the other people. You know, he sort of slowly walks up behind um, Linda. He kind of pushes himself at Bob. But he leaps out of the back seat for this one. And just a quick, you know, swipe in the music cue of the knife. Yeah. With the little bang, bang. So I think that's that's an interesting choice. I think that has everything to do with the actual environment of the car, though. It's such a small space that every yeah. move counts. Yeah. So you have to be quick yeah. about it. Whereas in a larger space, you can kind of have those broad swings and strides. And I think, you know, especially if you look at it like a, a haunted house and scare actors and you're amping yourself up and everything, mm -hmm. if you're looking at just at the character of Michael Myers, I think he was just excited. This was his first, you know, right. big spook of the evening. Yep. And uh, I sure hope I don't mess anything up. Oh, jeez. Oh, jeez. <laughs> oh, jeez, Rick. 
at these kids. Oh, shoot. Like, mm-hmm. even coming out from behind the uh, um, curtain there, how similar in the moment he looks to yeah. Michael peeking yeah. around. Oh, and he's, oh, he's that's, literally that's creepy. Hiding to scare her. Yeah. Oh. With oh, just that's the good. same as Michael, like, stalking around the outside of the house. Yeah, yeah. And working his way in. And shoot. then now he's seeing Carrie and her body, so again, things that. Things that turn you into Paul Rudd. Right? <laughs> Lori's just so. Lori's 100% done with everything. She really is. Happens, and that's part of what makes her such a great final girl. Exactly. She is very no nonsense. I mean, look at those look at those soccer mom barrettes. You you knew she was going to be you know the hero of the movie when you saw those soccer mom barrettes. Mm-hmm. Like that is absolutely the '90s Hillary Clinton look right there. This is going out again. The magic of TV in the '70s, right? But uh, especially with those animated flying saucers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Shoe. Nice casual reveal of Doctor Loomis. Probably uh. Probably smoking a hundred cigarettes in that bush. Probably. I mean, he is having an anxious evening. I think this is also a good time to point out um, another thing about the dual um, co-directing, the um, the two linear paths that come to meet at the point. The majority of this movie doesn't even see those two plot lines intersect. Mm-hmm. Not even at this point. Mm-hmm. This is still going at its own pace somewhere completely separate. Mm-hmm. He's not interacting with Lori. That moment I love. I love that you get that little bit where you say, you know what? Dr. Loomis likes scaring children too. And, you know, one wonders if that's, you know, a little bit of where Michael picked up some of these nuances. Like, what kind of, you know, mm-hmm. what kind of interaction took place in their enrichment and how much of that was, you know revealing um the truth of the matter i mean certainly i can imagine some of those um you know revealing peekaboo hiding games to be used as a psychological method to try to get to the truth of the matter yep and michael just being like i'll take that Uh, i'll take that i'll take five of those but he also you know it's the Myers house. It's, yeah. Uh, it's a scary house. And he's, he is trying to keep those kids away from that place in that moment. It does show the fact in the matter that Dr. Loomis is motivated by keeping children safe. And it also ties things back together because those are the bullies. Yeah. From uh, smashing Tommy's pumpkin. Yeah. Early on. And... Look really? how cramped they are, even though this is a wide shot. Look yes. How... Yeah, they're right in the middle, almost in the middle of the screen. I think that was to really make sure that they got the house over their shoulder. Mm-hmm. That they're talking with almost like the house is watching them. Mm-hmm. And here he comes. Hello, Bob. In his beat-up douchebag van and his David Cronenberg glasses. <laughs> Bob the Magnificent. Vita Fulci is great in this. Um, She's wonderful. I love her character so much. I would also just watch a spinoff that is solely this character. Interesting thing to note back when uh, Joss Whedon was anxious and uh, smart in the 90s. 
and had ideas. Um, he, one of the things he pitched about the creation of Buffy the Vampire Slayer is he went into meetings and said, what if PJ Souls was the lead in Halloween? What if this was the main character? Yeah. And that's exactly the, like, this character being the one who fights the monster yeah. is exactly what Buffy the Vampire Slayer became. It's so remarkable that Joss Whedon used to say these very smart and poignant things because didn't he just recently open his big fat fucking mouth and say something about an upcoming horror movie release about how, you know, it was... Oh, I remember. It was um, back when it was just revealed that Jurassic World was happening. Yep. And he said something along the lines of, oh, great, another, you know, misogynistic, you know, yep. piece of... Um, old world yep. horror trash. I mean, it, yep. it did turn out that way, yep. but it, it just so seemed... very early on. Yeah, it was very early on. It yep. could have gone anyway. And considering that the original Jurassic Park was a remarkably, you know, anti-misogynist film, yes. Laura yes. Dern's character is absolutely the lead uh -huh. of that expedition. Absolutely. And yes. Jeff Goldblum is, you know, the bumbling sex symbol, you know, you know, wandering around with open shirt and glistening sweat and tussled hair. Problems with the lost world. <laughs> yeah. God, look at Laurie and her mom apron. Mm -hmm. Everything about oh. her is so power. Like, I, I wish she wore it to the end of the movie. Me too. I wish she's like stabbing Michael in the throat with the knitting needle and then she just wipes it off on the apron. Like, things that, you know, things that Rob Zombie really missed out on. If you ask me. I could imagine him having Scout do that. No, I like that we cut from Michael's version of uh, traditional Halloween evening right into Lori's version. Because we have, um, we go right from the over the shoulder of him watching Linda and Bob almost in the room with them. Yeah. To the pumpkin carving. Yes. And think this is where Bob says the thing? Let's... We may have missed it. We may have missed it, but, you know, But for... the point is, yeah. he goes through, first we take your clothes off, then we take my clothes off, then we take Lindsay's clothes off. That's a red flag. I don't Big know how flag. he still got laid at that point. Oh, I... Ugh. I mean, considering that... Okay, so there's a song that was very, very popular in the 1960s called Little Children. Mm -hmm. And... This song hey. is... Hey! She just tripped over the Dolly tracks, and it's <laughs> in the movie. And I know that PJ Souls doesn't like when that gets pointed out, but it's worth Sorry, pointing PJ. out. Um, so there's a song called Little Children that came out before this movie, but was very, very popular. And actually had a re-release, a disco version re-release. But the song is presumably about a small child watching... Um, the sister's boyfriend take her up to bed to mm -hmm. fuck her. But the song is very deliberately about this interaction between the boyfriend and the small child. And the boyfriend is trying to seduce the child by saying, you know, if you're good, I'll take you to the movies. You know, I'll buy you candy. You know, I'll treat you, you know, the way you want to be treated if you let me take your sister upstairs. Um, Pedo Bob is ab absolutely somebody I can see being the protagonist of that song. Look at that yes. fucking pumpkin. Yep. I don't know about you, but when I want to get into the mood, I definitely bring my jack-o'-lantern in. Michael definitely put that pumpkin there. It's probably one of Lori's. I mean, this is the other house. 
So, um, this was the the Wallace house mm-hmm. where Annie was supposed to be babysitting. So they're not even you know technically supposed to be there. No, there goes Michael on the wall. So I really think that uh, that Michael set up that pumpkin in the bedroom. Yeah, took it with him deliberately for this purpose. Got an idea, ran with it. Another very quick, um, quick exchange. Which I have, I have no sympathy for Bob on this one. I, so I, I have I've, no I've sympathy point either. He's putting on his, uh, his, his sex goggles. Man, look at her just, you know, rule the scene, though, and rule... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, and I, like I love this. this. I love this interaction so much. <laughs> exactly. I love how demanding she is. It's amazing. She's in charge of the scene. She's in control of uh, the humor. Especially after that embarrassing spectacle with the bed sheets flying over all over oh, yes. the place, that peacock oh, yes. posturing that Bob gave for his mediocre performance. <laughs> like, you know, now she's settling in. She has her cigarette. She's okay. getting her beer. Not none of his shit. Nope. Making him go get the refreshments. Um. Also, the color is so... This role was originally supposed to be played by Dennis Quaid. I can't believe really? I forgot about that. Really? He was PJ Soul's boyfriend at the time. Ooh, what happened there? I do not know, but clearly he had things like Jaws 3 to do. I know, right? He's just too busy. The um, color in this scene is very, very, very Argento feeling Yes. Like, this is yes. absolutely, Even you know... Even with adult colors, the blues and the shadows are very Argento. Mm-hmm. And Carpenter was inspired by it. But this is one of my... Uh, this might be my favorite death in any horror movie, in terms of slashers in general, whatever. That pop-up scare is just perfectly executed. Mm-hmm. The way he goes from one door to the other, the back, the back and forth there. It's so well done. Yeah. And I, I love that this is the only one of the deaths in the movie that lingers. Yeah. Like, that's our really our first close-up of Michael, even though he's in shadow. And the way it just holds this shot and Bob goes limp, and we just see the slow head tilt mm-hmm. back and forth. This is such a unique death because it's the only one that doesn't have that premeditated motivation that links back to, you know, the prologue scene. Mm-hmm. Because he doesn't go after that boyfriend. Right. You know, he didn't. He just killed his sister. He, yeah. He let that, that guy go. That. The motivation is completely lost, except for the fact that, look, another sheet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just him having the haunted house time of it. But he's, uh, you know, clearly setting up some scares that are for his entertainment alone. Yeah. Uh, the bedsheet thing is so perfect. This is really what cements him as a practical joker right. in the movie. Because people get confused when you say that this silent um, boogeyman character is a practical joker and is actually having a sense of humor yeah. about what he's doing. But this entire sequence here is a joke to him. Mm-hmm. 
I wonder how much Tim Burton was thinking about Halloween when um, this scene or the similar scene in Beetlejuice came up. Probably if brought up, he'd say he was thinking about it a lot more than he actually was. Right. Probably if you asked him about it on the spot and told him it was brilliant, he'd say that Alec Baldwin's character was entirely based on Bob. <laughs> I mean, I could absolutely believe that in actually, the context of... He becomes a ghost downstairs, and then it's just adult ghost Bob is the entirety of Beetlejuice. I mean, I'll, I'll believe it. Well, sure, let's go with it. So many fans go up to poor PJ Souls with phone cords. That's horrible! That is... If you're listening, please don't do that. Please. That's not funny. No. That's not no, funny she at did, all. She always takes the picture, though. You can't not. She goes cross-eyed, and she's like... Bleh. Still, that's just... You know, it's, it's one thing when you've done the role to mm-hmm. do it. It's another thing to think in your mind, man, you know what I need to have in my yeah. possession forever? Yeah. I love that. That creepy moment. That so creepy moment there. It's so effing scary, John. <laughs> Where she doesn't even know no. who she's on the phone with. She doesn't, she's only aware of the fact that something is wrong. And that's what leads her to you know, be proactive, ultimately, and go over to the other house. But she has no backstory or context, even really on Michael, who Michael Myers is. He's not no. brought up to her by name. It's just, you know, she sees the Myers house in the beginning, and it's awful stuff happened there once. Right. How much do people in this neighborhood, are we expected to believe, know about the Michael Myers house? Because we see those, you know, little kids yeah. going and doing the run-up prank to it, but, you know, how much of that is based in local legend? How much of that is just, you know, there's a scary, dilapidated house, I bet it's haunted. The sheriff brings it up, too, and when the sheriff talks about it, it sounds like it's a town urban legend. How much does the novelization get into that idea? Mm, not as much as you'd think? Not not terribly much. Um, see, I would like to... If I was doing the novelization of Halloween, I would like to have Shirley Jackson chapters in there that are from the house's perspective. I was about to say, you would do a Stephen King Shirley Jackson thing. Yeah. That, that's just... And that would be about three quarters of the book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, not every Halloween works. There's also some chapters from uh, Michael's perspective while he's uh, watching the girls oh dear. in the early portions that are a little crude. See, I can't imagine anything else but Morty Smith dialogue. I really can't. I don't know why what the appeal would be to get into Michael's head at least as an adult. No. Like, you, you'd want to keep him as that sort of blank slate. Yeah. You know, I, I would treat him like a ghost. Yeah. Because it's basically what he is. Even though he's a physical being, he's, you know, the ghost of, of a human being. He's, it actually is a almost a haunted house movie in a lot of ways because it's this house with this tragic backstory. Right. And then the figure that's the cause of the tragic backstory comes back. And he's not an actual physical ghost but it ties into things like that in a lot of ways right 
Laurie can. Laurie vision. We had we had the Michael Myers POV. Now we have the Laurie POV. Which is a nice callback. Her POV is very interesting. It very very observant compared to the kind of yeah. wandering. It's not the stalking sort of deliberate POV. No. That that Michael had in the beginning. Or no. Or the airplane, you know, flying into view vision of Open Michael. Wide. <laughs> no, she has a very observant glance where she sees everything yeah. that's ahead of her and she takes, you know, careful, calculated glimpses to decide, but yeah. she's not so much focused on one thing as she is taking it all in. Yeah. And especially that uh, protective moment of looking in on the kids to see them safe and in bed before she even goes over to the other house. This also even feels taller than um, Michael's POV too and something oh, yeah. that I've noticed and come to appreciate in watching this the past several times with you is that Michael Myers is a very diminutive um, physical presence yes. um, which is not something that I feel like comes across in pop culture references yeah. to Michael Myers. I feel like the slasher characters are perceived as these hulking masses, yeah. but Michael uh, is very small. I mean, he's a child, like, in the beginning, but yeah. Jason Voorhees, Jason is a huge hulking brute. He's he's Kane Hodder, of course he he's, is. He's, he's like, he takes up the entire door frame. Yeah. And some of the sequels made um, Michael out to appear to be impossibly tall. Even Halloween 2 made him you know, it was shot to make him look very tall, but he's always been very slender. Mm -hmm. um, he has a very slight build. Yeah. Um, and the, especially the And he's absolutely movie. swallowed by the clothes that he's wearing, too, and yes. that mask absolutely oh, does not fit him correctly. Everything is baggy on him, and that I like because it goes back to sort of, even if he is uh, very intelligent and maybe adult-minded, but I think he's too... He's just goofy. He's too absent for that. It goes back to sort of a childlike yeah. excitement in what he's doing. Yeah. Um, the bagginess of the mask and the overalls makes it actually look like a Halloween costume. Yes. Which is really neat. Death drop. <laughs> Coming out Halloween. It's Beer and Six Halloween. Beer and Six Halloween. And Lori, as you'll notice... Proving herself as the capable heroine is not tripping over the dog crack. No. <laughs> Lori also, you know, to go back to the original point, Lori feels tall, and even yes. every single angle that comes at her from yeah. below. Um, I don't know how tall Jamie Lee Curtis is. You'd have to fill me in on that one. But, you know, I imagine that she's probably not the kind yeah. of statuesque that... But this is a low angle. Like, this yeah. is meant to give her her power. But even the shots that are from her POV seem like they're coming higher yeah. and that they're taking in more and that there's yes. more of a, you know, everything the light touches. It's a wider scope. Yes. It's not shadowed and narrow and moving in on a specific thing. She has a sense of, you know, regal surveillance where she is competent. She is a large, looming presence. Mm -hmm. Lumising. Lumising presence. I actually was going to compare that to Loomis, who takes off every single shot, basically. Oh, yeah. He's Almost in, everything is a close-up. Yeah. Which is really interesting. And one thing to go back to, to be fair, to go back to another point we had earlier with how 
Loomis doesn't actually uh, interfere with the main storyline until uh, the very end, I think that also is, from a, for a practical reason, that ties back into how much they had time with him. Right. He's only on set for five days. They had to shoot all the scenes at once. Right. So he practically could not be involved in the larger storyline with and interact with all the characters too much. Has there ever been any kind of follow-up media with him in regards to his reflections back on this particular movie or this particular franchise? Um, I mean, I know uh, Donald Pleasance came to came to love doing Doctor Dr. Right. Loomis and came back for uh, every sequel until his death, right. except for Halloween 3. He died in post-production mm-hmm. of Halloween 6, mm-hmm. and he said that uh, 22 would be his last, uh, all circumstances, had those worked out. Right. Now Laurie is in the midst of the haunted house yes. with Michael just pulling his fishing line uh, dropping these gags. Right. He has deliberately laid this out for her. And I think um, to show how premeditated Michael Myers really is as a villain, that shot of Annie on the bed yeah. against Judith Myers' headstone really cements that whole thing. Why do you think Annie? Because out of all of them, Annie looks the least like. Exactly. Um, I it's a really interesting question. That's um, such an Argento drop. That that, that, really that is. knife coming down so deliberately and that impossible physics defying stair fall. I love it. It's so goofy. Yeah. I really I do want to Look know how gangly he is. Yeah. Look how floppy I mean, he that is. That thing is so baggy on him. It's it's uh it's really interesting. It's almost like the, the coveralls are like billowing. And Michael Myers is usually one of those presences too that's used as like the oh he's you know coming up re- behind you he's so stealth but you know that that shot alone yeah. he's he's not yeah I mean he he is in the early portion of the movie but um, if you take into his uh, excitement with things all pretenses are gone by this point he's got it yeah now. he's those other murders were just setting things up for her. He wanted her to bear witness to them. And now... Um, it's that variable that, you know, was alluded to in the passion, like, let's say, in Behind the Mask, the story of, you know, Leslie Vernon. Yeah. Um, where he just so meticulously talks about his method as though, you know, it's going to work out this way. Yeah. And it's going to, you know have this veneer of sprezzatura, this, you know, impossible coolness to it. Yeah. But, you know, we ultimately see that that's not what, in act, you know, in actuality happens, and certainly isn't what happens here, but people still buy into that illusion, yeah. even, even when they see the contrary. It never works out for them. These no. girls always prove themselves to be smarter and more capable, which is, you know, part of the overworking kind of feminism of some of these movies. Hint, hint. Neither here nor there. But uh, those those people right there, some of the biggest, most untalked about assholes in movie history. This girl is clearly screaming for help. Yeah. This is not a Halloween prank. No. They could have let her in. They, they come right up to the window and peek out at her and see her screaming face with her giant cut on her arm. 
Because mm-hmm. Michael's already nicked her. He's already drawn blood. Although Tommy's not faring much better. No. Look at his look at his floppy gangly pony walk. Like there's there's nothing elegant no. about that at no. that point. And part of again when we get into the bigger franchise discussion, there are some things that Viv Warlock does, um, acting wise in two that are almost uh, really cool in a more Doug Jones-ish yeah. kind of way. Yeah. Where it's a very deliberate sort of almost mime-like movements. Mm-hmm. But here, Nick Castle is... I mean, most of his direction this for is, everything... This is still Nick Castle, too, we should point yes. out. Yeah. Um, there are some scenes when it's not. Uh, rumor has it for a very quick shot, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is actually behind the mask. Really? Has for, she ever admitted to that? Nah, I've heard, I believe it was... Um, Tommy Lee Wallace and maybe Erwin Jablons have talked about it in some sort of documentary for media, but um, I've never heard Jamie Lee Curtis talk about that in particular. I don't know what shot it would have been, Um, but I know it was a very tight shoot and everyone was helping out as uh, best as they could. Right. Like she was helping rig the camera at certain points in the movie. She was running cable. Everyone was just working to get the movie made. Right. Which is, I think, a large part of why it works so well. Michael's position there, though. Draw me like one of your French girls. <laughs> Michael's little damselly, like, fully displayed position <laughs> on the ground there. It's just fantastic. It really is. But, yeah, I think the, the passion just to get this movie made really paid off. Yeah. And I think, um,. It's you know, a beautiful day in the neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Loomis is stalking the streets. Uh, the sheriff getting increasingly fed up, which is part of their rapport that I like. Right. Is that they get to a point where they cannot stand each other. Mm-hmm. But there's a definite mutual respect. Right. And um, one of the things I also want to point out about, um, you know, how abrasive Donald Pleasance was when he got hired was apparently Carpenter said that that was something that uh, he just did. Yeah. When he first when he was talking to a very young director or a first timer mm-hmm. was he wanted to challenge them. Right. Because it's not so much I absolutely hate what I'm doing as much of it as it was I want to gauge how much I should care because I want to know how much the director cares. Right about what they're doing. Right. Which I respect, and I think that's a very good way to go about it. Absolutely. Carpenter's also said in terms of just how hard everyone worked on set that this was uh, the most fun he'd ever been on. Most of them said that this was the most fun they ever had making a movie, which, you know, even with the amount of hard work and long hours that go into something like this. Yeah. You can really, you know, sort of tell. Look how suspicious installed he was when he saw that the kids were there. Like, he oh, moved yeah. forward the, with the knife a little bit, but then he kind of, like... He never makes a move on the he kids. Takes a, he takes it back. He, like, did one of those things to the side there to make sure that they were, you know, clear out of the picture. Oh, yeah. He's very focused on her at this yeah. point. Yeah. And not falling for her move that I thought was actually pretty inventive. Mm-hmm. 
uh, poor Isaac Lynch has a bunch of this scene, I probably would have fallen and gone out to look on the patio. I mean, that's... Well, maybe someone's out there. <laughs> and if you were the, the the deranged, you know, killer in this scene, you certainly would have that, oh, jeez, Rick, internal monologue the entire time. I mean, that never goes away. <laughs> no. I want, I want a cut of this movie where Justin Rowland just does a voiceover of Michael Myers' internal dialogue for the whole oh, movie. yes. Justin, if you're listening, please. Oh, and we know that you are, clearly. Please, please, please do that. Another thing about pointing out actors uh, portraying Michael Myers at various points in the movie. Yes. This classic, infamous closet sequence. Yes. This is Tommy Lee Wallace in the Michael Myers mask. Yes. This is, this is Tommy Wallace doing the scene because he knew he had rigged the, the closet door and everything. And he knew how to break it down uh, Very with good. the most ease. And another thing I wanted to point out about uh, talking as much as we did about Loomis and Michael's time in the sanitarium. Yeah. And um, how much other forms of media have gone into that. Yeah. There was a TV version of Halloween where, because this was so shocking and hardcore, right? Uh, when it premiered on TV in like probably 1980 or something. Um, they had cut so much that they had to go back in and film scenes for length. Yeah. So they did film additional scenes for this movie. And there are um, one or two scenes that cover um, Loomis and Michael in the sanitarium right before he gets out. Really? Yeah. Like just a couple of days before he breaks out. Do any of those exist as um, scenes on any of these restorations or yes. are those... If you have uh, the Halloween box set, for those of you out there, uh, it's a very useful tool that has three different cuts of the movie, and one of them is the TV version, with those added scenes included. Oh, excellent. And another really interesting thing about it is that those scenes were right before they did Halloween 2, and it's almost like a different version of this movie. Oh, wow. Because there are things put into that one to lead up to the sister connection. Very good. In Halloween 2. Oh, that's so neat. So there are some, there's some really neat stuff in there. Um, if you're into the, the sister angle and the ongoing storyline of the sequels mm -hmm. that tie this one more effectively into Halloween 2 and what follows uh, later on. That's, that's so very neat. That's so very neat. Like a Mary Shelley retroactively editing, you yep. know, Frankenstein kind of way. I, yeah. I'm really into that. That's, that's so neat. Mm-hmm. Dr. Loomis always focused on protecting the children. Yeah. I mean, he clearly like, figures out that something's up now. Yeah. And I think this is still, yeah, this is still Nick Castle here. Mm -hmm. um, the shots of Michael standing up and coming into frame in general really. Look at that shoulder sachet. He's taken a beating at this point, which I think is really neat. And here's Tony, Tony Moran, ah. who was brought in at the last second, even though we kind of see Nick Castle's face in the beginning. Yeah. When Michael gets the mask pulled off, they wanted someone to have a more um, angelic face, as they put it. Look at that angelic face. I know, right? Those eyebrows, those wispy eyebrows. And then here we have the classic six times to take him out. One, two, two, three, four, four. It's six. 
It's six. What's interesting is that when uh, they re-edited it for the beginning of Halloween 2, right. where he's actually going off about how he shot him six times, times. again and again, it's uh, seven times. Really? There's a mix-up in the sound editing, and you clearly hear when they remix this at the beginning of Halloween 2, you hear seven shots go off. Wow. Which is a mix-up, but, uh, you know, still works. Not that noticeable. At what point in the production did um, Pleasance come in? If I don't know when they shot his scenes. I know that must have been uh, right in the I want to say it was around a week or so into filming. Yeah. I know I've read about it, but I don't know. I was going to say it has to be somewhere nearish to the middle because if Jamie Lee Curtis has already been yeah. filming yeah. these scenes. Um, that. The ending there with Loomis looking out um, was something that was really interesting in terms of uh, the way he portrayed the character and the way Carpenter directed him. Was That was one of the times where he went to John Carpenter with two choices. And he said, when I look over the balcony and I see that he's not there, I can play this one of two ways. I can either do like, oh my god, he's gone. Or I can look over and say, I knew this would happen. Yeah. And they shot it both times, and it right. went with the, I, I knew this would this would happen. And it's much more effective than if he'd feigned, like, because right. it would have felt fake. Yeah. Because you can see in Loomis' character that he's built Michael up as this entity. Yeah. And you never really, like, believe it until Michael starts to take an immense beating at the end, because there's nothing to really showcase him as something supernatural right until he you know gets stabbed and he gets the needle in the throat and he keeps getting back up it's a movie that very few horror movies have kind of done this where for two-thirds it's a realistic horror movie and then in the last third it switches speaking of switches um we see some bad math here in the credits michael myers would be 21 at this point which the sequel does get right uh, the shape, I think, is also a very interesting um, yes. credit because that would be Nick Castle's credit for being um, yes. Michael for the majority. Um, the interesting component to that, and this is certainly something we'll talk about more um, in our actual commentary um, on the entire series, um, our actual our feature discussion. on the, yeah. our discussion, um, is the connection between the Michael Myers figure and the Frankenstein figure. And, you yes. know, we talked a little bit about the revision process that Mary Shelley used, but also the way that Mary Shelley describes the creature as a shape. Yes. And the way that the creature is um, articulated with these very esoteric kinds of terms until he is given a presence later on in um, his confrontation scenes. The Bowling Green Philharmonic Orchestra is not a thing. That's just John Carpenter and a keyboard. Yes. <laughs> The thing, courtesy of RKO General, Forbidden Planet, which would have been the second movie yep. that the children were watching. And that's basically, but yeah, I, the shape, um, very much uh, more in line in terminology with a golden type yeah. figure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which will tap on in our uh, Halloween franchise discussion. So yes. stay tuned for that. Please do. Thank you for joining us and for this for wash through. Yes. Thank you for watching. Thank you for watching.